Hey everyone, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at New Song and get to jump in again on the series that we're going through in the Gospel of Mark. And I've just been really encouraged and even challenged by this series that we're going through. Sometimes when we, when we process through a book or even a, a topical type sermon, um, we're, we're tasked with these large passages of scripture. And, and when you do that, you're forced to kind of pick, pick a part of it, kind of pick something to focus on. And maybe even with the topical ones, you're, you're kind of get a little bit hung up on the thing that really emphasizes the point that you're trying to go through. And one of the cool things about this is that we get an opportunity to, to really focus in on these moments of the life of our Lord and say, why, why did he do this? Why did this make it into to the gospel of Mark and really dig into what that looks like and what that means? And, and Mark, we know as being the shortest gospel, it doesn't mean it lacks content. He's compacted a lot of stuff in this first uh, chapter and a half. He has four major healings, uh, a speaking tour. He was baptized. He's starting to collect some of his disciples along the way. Um, and there's a lot going on in these passages. And last week, Grant talked about the, um, this, this paralytic man that his friends couldn't get to Jesus and lowered this man through a roof to be in front of Jesus. And, and in that, he was talking about this concept of pursuing God, pursuing Jesus. And sometimes not only, not under our own uh, strength and our own capabilities, but under the strength of some other people. And I think that that really speaks a lot into the passage that we're going through today, into the, the content that we'll unpack today. But before we get there, I wanna, I wanna speak a little bit to the context. One of the contexts that we're experiencing this in is, is the season of Lent. This is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. And, and, and we just celebrated Ash Wednesday and we had an amazing experience where as a church body, we gathered together, worshiped, uh, experienced God, was encouraged by Grant's word, took communion and participated in Ash Wednesday, which Ash Wednesday is, is the beginning of Lent. And it's this time where we contemplate uh, the brevity of life. The, the from ash to ash, from dust to dust that we, we came and, and we think of that. And when I think about that, I think of kind of a, like a tombstone, right? And there's, there's two dates on it. There's the date the person was born and the date the person passed. And in between, there's this dash, right? This line. And, and I know there's a lot of poems and, and some messages that go like, what are you gonna do with that line and, and all that? But, but I think in the season, it's worth contemplating. It's worth thinking about. And in this passage, there's a couple of questions that come up that I think that really speak to the question of what's the point of that line? What's the point of a life? And the questions are this. The questions are, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And on top of that, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus proclaiming? What is new about the world in this point in Jesus's ministry? And I think that when we, when we get some insight into those questions, it starts answering the bigger questions about life and our purpose and our direction and our calling. And super excited to jump into that. We're actually gonna be in Mark chapter two, uh, going from 13 to 17. And we're gonna start in verse 13. It says, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. He said to him, follow me. 
And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. And this, in this passage, one thing I wanna, I wanna kind of create some context or just encourage us with is as we process through this, um, and I've said this before, and I think it's a good discipline as we go through all of the gospel of Mark, but view it in light of the, the amount of the movie that we've seen thus far, the only footage that we have, because, because I know for some of you, you have the context, you know what coming ne- comes next, you know how the story ends, but there's some intentionality to only know what we know thus far in Mark. And the reason that I encourage us to do that is that I think that it might give us more of an opportunity and, and be more open to, to something new that God might wanna show us that we don't fall back on some of the other assumptions and some of the things that we know in the greater context, but, but we get to see something new about what God is saying and, and an aspect of God's character that he reveals. So I just encourage us to kind of have that posture as we process through this. In verse 13, it says, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. A few things. First of all, we see this progression and I don't think it's by accident that Jesus's ministry early on, it starts and he was in a synagogue and then it moves into him being in this home, this house that was bursting at the seams with people and you had to dig in the roof just to get in. And now we find him by the sea once again and we know that this is a place that Jesus likes to teach and speak and there's some practical reasons, right? There's a slope, so it creates an amphitheater type setting. There's more room. Uh, Sound travels well in that setting. But I think more than that, there's an intentionality that's happening with this. We see that the access to Jesus is growing in each of these settings. That the synagogue was specific to a certain group of people. That a home anyone could get into, anyone could, could be there, but there was only so much room. And now, He's by the sea where any passerby could come, where any amount of people could gather and be there. And, and there's more access to Jesus. And I think that's foreshadowing and that's, that's putting a context in the light of the rest of this passage that, that what Jesus' ministry is doing is getting to a point where there's more access to what he is saying and what he is about. And the other thing is this fact that people are drawn to him. Jesus doesn't go in and create a rally to get everyone hyped and then run over to the sea and say, all right, listen to me. Wherever he goes, whenever he speaks, people are drawn to that. And one of the questions that we're, we're asking today is, is what is that? What is that message? What is Jesus doing that draws people so quickly to him? So much so he has to go to the desolate place, the wilderness to hide. So he gets some alone time with his father. And we see that Jesus is teaching them, that he's ministering to them, that he's giving direction in a unique way. In verse 14, it says, he passed by and saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And so we have this one verse and this one verse is the calling of Levi. And we don't know much up until this point about Levi. 
One thing in the context outside of, of what we have so far about Levi is that Levi is also known in the context of Mark and even in the book of Matthew uh, as Matthew. And, and so that's a little bit of context, so you know, so you can kind of make that connection. But the only other things that we know about Levi is that he's a tax collector, that Jesus called him and that he obeyed that calling. And that's it. That's where it stops. And, and it would be easy to kind of, especially with the shorter passages, I have this tendency to be like, okay, let's dig into the weeds of this. How can we mine this a little bit more and think about the, the faith of Levi to leave a lucrative job and go follow a rabbi. And, and maybe he knew him because Jesus was in the area, a lot, all these different things. But when we look at the bigger picture and we see that Mark only used one verse to explain the calling of Levi and spent the next three verses talking not about the faith of Levi, but about who he was, the type of person he was, the type of person that Jesus was associating with, was calling to be his apprentice, was, was, was interacting with. And, and that's the important piece that we'll see through this passage. In verse 15, it says, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So we have Jesus reclining at this table and just to give some cultural context that when you would, when you would eat, there would be these tables laid out. Maybe there's one, maybe they're in a U shape, even in a circle, depending on how many people. And, and you would lean towards the table and lay down on one of your shoulders and eat with the other hand. It was a very low table. And in doing that, depending on how many people, your feet were further away from the table and just your upper body was there because you were close and connected. And it was this intimate setting, but more than that, there was cultural significance to sharing a meal like this. And what it said when you shared a meal like this is it, it proclaimed a sense of kinship with the people that you were there, a, a sense of acceptance and, and belonging with the people that, that were around that table and, and, and a concept of equality that you were all on the same level and you were all sharing that experience. And we know that that has some ramifications. And when we think about the company that Jesus is keeping and him proclaiming those truths to the people that are around him and we see those people, it gets a little wonky. The first group of people are tax collectors. And that actually translates as publicans. And what that means is literally a farmer of taxes, that they were tasked by the Roman empire to, to to take the taxes from the people. And this wasn't just some, some Roman person coming in and forcing the money, but this was a, a local, a local Jewish man with, that grew up around these people that was now taxing them. And it wasn't taxes like we have nowadays, like a set amount and we know what's coming and what's happening. But, but he was expected in that area to gather a certain amount. And, but he wasn't limited in what he could gather. So if he was like, okay, this person coming, I know I need to tax him $10. That would be $20 in taxes. And, and what happened is that he would live, his lifestyle would be paid for off the back and the sweat of all these people that are barely making it. And because of that, tax collectors were despised. They were traitors. They were exiled. They were outcasts in the community. And then there's this other group of people. And this other group of people are called sinners. And, and I want to give some clarity to this too, because we think sinner as simply someone who sins. We refer to ourselves like this at some point too. But what this group means is um, it's not just talking about someone who sins because Pharisees would sin. 
and they would make sacrifices and go through the ritual to be cleansed again when they did. So it wasn't just about one who sinned, it's about one who had a blatant disregard for the law and for the rituals and for the, for the salvation history of being a part of God's chosen and set apart people, of being a part of this, this nation of Israel, this, this Judaism that they were blessed to be a part of, that they completely disregard it. And they were called sinners. And we see this group of people dining with Jesus, that Jesus is sitting there and reclining with them. And, and it goes on to say, for there were many who followed him. For those were many who followed them, followed him. And, and I think about following Jesus and, and I'm, we're gonna have a little bit of time in a second to, to answer a question, to throw something in the chat. And it, it could be a simple answer, but the question is this, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And what I mean by this question, it doesn't have to be a long drawn out doctrine of following Jesus. It could be a word. It could be prayer. It could be a, maybe a posture. It could be submission. It could be a quick phrase. And, and it's not about getting all of it in one sentence or, or summing it up. It's just about throwing out some things that it means to follow Jesus. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of time right now to do that and throw those answers in the chat. thank you for uh, engaging that question. Maybe you didn't get a chance to put anything in the chat, but you were just thinking about, yeah, what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? My guess is that part of your definition, part of the thing that you were thinking is, is this concept of pursuing God through, through prayer, through scripture, through community, small groups, discipleship opportunities, teaching, fellowship, worship, that, that those things, that pursuing God in all these different formats and ways is one of the definite is is kind of a way to define that. Maybe it's a, a way we live in submission to the reality of what Jesus has done. And those things are good and those things are true, but I have another question for you. And you aren't gonna write this down. I just want you to contemplate this. What does a follower of Jesus look like? What does a follower of Jesus look like? And, 
And if you're struggling a little bit, if there's a little bit of tension, like, well, I just kind of told you, I just answered this, right? I just gave a list of, yeah, a follower of Jesus does these things. And I think when we collapse these two answers together is when we run into some of the problems that the Pharisees were running into. When we focus on uh, what it means to follow Jesus is the definition of, of what a follower of Jesus looks like. When we collapse those definitions, we start, it's not that that's bad and it's not that those things are bad, but what it does is it makes us focus on the actions rather than the reality and our standing before God. And we think about this situation. Jesus, when he called Levi, he didn't pluck him out of the muck and mire it is to be a tax collector in this area and, and get him on the straight and narrow and start to teach him the way of the Lord and, and moving forward and discipling him. That wasn't his, his mode. But what he did instead is he went to his home. But by calling Levi, he implicated the company that he would find himself in by the company Levi had to hang out with, which was these people who were also outcasts. And what Jesus did, what Jesus prioritized is he didn't try to fix Levi, but what he did is he, he blessed Levi by, by this thing, this concept of presence. And his very presence was speaking, we know culturally crazy things like equality and acceptance, not only of Levi, but the other people who were in the room. And this just didn't happen in this time. We know now, and we know the value of that now, but let's stick with the story. This was not something that was culturally normal. And we see the ramifications show itself in uh, the next verse where it says, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And first of all, I just want to address, there's a little bit of like the pot calling the kettle black thing going on here. That's like kind of a little bit weird. Like, how do you, how are you critiquing me when you're like here and you can see it? Like maybe they were just standing in the corner and not participating. I don't know. But there's a little bit of that going on and we can see that and just address that. But another thing I want us to, to kind of be careful with, and this is my, my context too, is that whenever I hear a Pharisee, whenever a Pharisee enters the scene, I kind of picture this like slimy guy with like a twisty mustache kind of coming in to trick Jesus, right? To kind of pull one over on him. And, and, and it's because I have this larger context and I know that they actually do that sometimes. But this, this question that the Pharisees are asking is a completely 100% valid question. Because as a Jewish person, you were one who were called to be set apart as God's chosen people, as members of a covenant that had certain restrictions and demands and expectations of you. And it was the most important thing about your identity and who you were. And, and, and so it was a proper question to ask, why would you risk physically, spiritually, socially tarnishing this thing that makes us different just for a meal? It's a legitimate, valid question. And I think one of the reasons that they came to that point, and I, and I think this is true for us too, is kind of an improper view of righteousness. That we collapse righteousness and cleanliness and sinlessness all kind of together in one. 
But scripturally, righteousness holds a very specific role and definition. And that definition is righteousness always is tied to the relationship with God in the bounds of the covenant that he has made with you. In simple terms, what righteousness means is literally our standing before God. And it's not just about our sinlessness or how clean we are, but, but when we get caught up in that, we can focus on that and we can get distracted from the thing that is of most importance, which is our standing in a relationship with God and get hung up on the thing that is less importance, proving that we're worthy to be there. And we move on in this passage to hear what Jesus has to say. In verse 17, it says, and when Jesus heard it, for one, Jesus is within earshot. He's hearing this conversation going on. He's hearing what's being said and he responds to it. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, and again, I just want us to, to maybe think about this a little bit differently. Whenever I think about Jesus talking to a Pharisee, I think about him almost scolding them or, or being demeaning or degrading them almost because they're getting it wrong but I wonder if there isn't a twinge of empathy that he has here because what he's doing has not existed yet. And he responds to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. And we see Jesus respond to this questioning. We see Jesus hear what's going on acknowledge what's going on and respond to them. And he's, he says, okay, in, in your language, I get it. These people are, are unclean. They're gross. They're sick. They're obvious, also a little bit corrupt and devious. And those, those, they're those things, right? And it's like, yeah. What does that type of person need? What does that type of person need? What Jesus is doing here is he's sh kind of shattering the context in which the Pharisees were functioning and living their life, but he's calling upon the, the original Abrahamic covenant that yes, you are God's chosen people set apart in a covenant in a certain kind of existence that stands out in the culture that you live in to be a blessing to all nations. He's pointing out how maybe they got stuck in one area. And, and this raises a question in my heart and not, not one of conviction or of shame or of guilt, but a real question for us to be aware of and ask and contemplate. Have we as the church fallen into the same rhythm? Have we become religious? Have we become focused on the first part of the covenant? And I'm not talking about the Abrahamic covenant, right? Like we don't, we don't live under that anymore, but the new one where we are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because we have created structure and programming and church and small groups and doctrine and curriculum around this holistic approach and, and what it means and what it looks like to love God with our whole life. And none of those things are bad. Those are good. But have we done that to such an extent that we have forgotten and minimized the second part of the command, which is to love our neighbor as ourself? 
that Jesus is bringing into view something that's in contrast with the personification of religion, of, of the religion of Judaism, which is the Pharisees, to a new way of thinking of things. And that new way is a kingdom view. So what he's asking, what he's saying is that if we have the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? The point of following Jesus is the sick. The point is not being the light, but it's that darkness needs to be expelled. The point is not just your redemption, but that your life is a banner that proclaims that redemption is possible. That we don't get caught up in in our efforts, in in our desires, in in this first part of, of trying to love God so much and prove that we love God so much that that we feel and negate this other piece of what we're called to do. And I think part of this is just how church history and structure has went and not intentionally with good desire to seek after God, but it's created the structure where it almost implicates that, that we need to know how to love God before we can love others. That we need to have something figured out before we can properly represent our Lord. And when we see the followers of Jesus here are the most detestable people, that we realize that that that's not what we're called to do. That, That this thing that draws us to Jesus, this thing that makes us want to get closer to him, that made these people want to get closer to him was more than an answer to the question, where am I gonna spend eternity? But it was answer to the question, what is the point of my life? And I want to address this, the the reality, the tangible reality of, Josh, how am I supposed to love other people if I don't even know how to properly love God? I I mean, I know that I'm supposed to do, but it's hard. I have questions. I get confused. I, I know I don't know enough. I still have some tension that I'm not sure how God works in this situation. And And what if they ask a question that I have too? Or what if I don't have the answer? How am I supposed to do both of those things at once? And the answer I think we find in this passage, not in the teachings of Jesus, but in the actions of Jesus. That Jesus answered this question, that the answer to that question, how do I do both? How do I love people when when I don't even fully grasp what it means to love God or how to love God well? The answer is presence. The answer is presence to be with them. And before we get too hung up, I know the context we currently find ourselves in, in a pandemic with so many things going on in this world and and this need to be distant and and we don't get as many opportunities to be face-to-face and with each other. I wanna clarify something, that presence is not the same as proximity, but presence is about accessibility. When I talk to my leaders that are, that are leading our, our youth, our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, stuff like that. One of the things I encourage them with is to kind of view your walk, your, your, your ministry as you being kind of a safety net, 
a safety net for someone who's learning how to swing on a trapeze. And, and the reason I say that is that, that you might go weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years hanging out with a student and them never coming to you with a serious conversation, right? It's just always the silly stuff and always the distraction and all those things. But by you being there, by you being a person in their life, by, by the safety net being there, it frees the person who's learning how to swing on a trapeze to be bold, to take risks, to pursue the thing that they wanna pursue because they know that something is there to catch them. That they can more freely live into the thing and the person that they want to be because that, that, that net is there. Then it might go weeks without without talking to them or even without hearing them, but, but their life is made different because they know that there is a net there to catch them. And, and it's easy to talk about youth and it can be like, yeah, they need that. And like, let's be honest, that's true for all of us. The only problem is when, when we become adults is that pride starts to seep in a little bit more and, and we feel less like we have the right to be broken or struggling or trying to figure things out because of our age or experience or how long we've been a Christian. And, and so we start to isolate ourselves. We start to pull ourselves back. And even worse than that, we start to present what it means to follow Jesus. We know the list of things you're supposed to do. We know the list of things we're supposed to let people know that we're doing. And when we do that, what we do is we actually remove our presence. And in the place we put an act. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is the new reality. This is the kingdom view that Jesus is calling us to that yes, we're to pursue God with everything holistically but that's not what makes you a follower of Jesus. What makes you a follower of Jesus is your righteousness. And by that, I mean your right standing with God because of what Jesus did. And that we might be drawn not to uh, an eternal uh, salvation, that we might not be drawn to an ethical and moral high standing or, or, or a superiority but we would be drawn to the person of Jesus. And, and I think about the setting that Jesus was in. And Grant the other week talked about how uh, when we see stories, we, we like to kind of relate to characters in the story, right? And, and there's a couple characters in the story. And again, it's a little presumptuous to relate to the Jesus character. If you do, that's fine. Let's shout about that. That's good too. But, but there's other characters in the story. There's the tax collectors and sinners, these people that are the antithesis of a religious person. And maybe even worse than that, one who purposefully attack and downgrade what it means to follow Jesus, right? And maybe this is you, maybe you relate, maybe religion hasn't really been your thing. Or maybe it has and, and you actually have been hurt by it and frustrated by it. So you've cast it off and feel like an outcast. And then there's the Pharisee and, and I wanna view the Pharisee in a different light because again, they were doing their best to do what God called them to do. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've spent your life pursuing God, doing all the things that people have told you to do. And, and, and you've gotten to the point and you still have some questions and you still have some struggles. Maybe you've been at New Song almost as long as I've been alive. So you don't necessarily feel like you have the freedom 
to have questions, that you have the freedom to be messy, like Grant said, to be struggling, to lean on other people because you're expected to be the one who has it figured out. And maybe you're like the disciples, these fishermen, right? These Jewish men that, that they went, they done the ceremonies, they make the sacrifices, but man, the majority of their life is just trying to survive. Life come at you fast. You got a lot going on and you care about your faith and you care about what's going on. But life's also busy and you got to pay the bills, right? Whatever character you relate with, I want to encourage you with this. I want to encourage you with the fact that I believe that when Jesus was in that room, when all those people were gathered, that there was a moment that Jesus looked up, looked around at all the people and kind of had a smile came over his face. And he thought to himself, this is my church. This is my bride. This is my body. This is what it's about, that these different people at different stages with different views and different backgrounds come together because there's something that I bring that transcends all of those things. And that is a kingdom view of this world a view where we don't get hung up on how we're gonna make it and what we're gonna do, but we get empowered and excited about what God's gonna do through us. So whichever character you are there, I wanna I want encourage you with the fact that, that Jesus wasn't just happy with them being in the room, but he saw immense value in the presence of each of them. And for you to know that you have immense value, your presence. And again, not proximity, your accessibility, the openness to, to who you really are, your real life, your goods, your bads, your giftings, your, your faults, whatever it is, your presence in and of itself has value. That, that when Jesus looked at that room, when he saw each of those, vi the, those people, he didn't rate them. We want to, right? We want to be like, yeah, Pharisees probably the worst, the sinners, you know, need the in-between. We want to rate them, but Jesus didn't rate them. What he saw is different groups of people, but all of which were his children. And because of that, were immensely valuable. And, and so I hope that there's two things that come from this. One is that you take just encouragement in the fact of what Jesus did that you, when you come to God, are declared righteous. It's not you're perfect. You, have, you don't have everything figured out, but your standing before God is one of righteousness. That you're in right standing with God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done in you. And, and then as well, I hope that whatever group that you go with, that you might be emboldened by the fact that your presence has value, that you being there, that you engaging, that you bringing the fullness of yourself, you bringing the real self to a situation has immense value. And as we're in the season of Lent, as we're contemplating our reality, as we're thinking about the things in our life that distract us from God, the, the things that we might need to add to, to know God better, I want us to also Think about the things that are gonna attribute true value to that line, to that dash. And those things are our purpose, belonging, identity, these things that we gain 
not in our pursuance of God, but in God's presence with us and in our ability to reveal the grace, mercy, peace, and love of God and ultimately the hope that will not put to shame to a world that's desperately in need of it. Let's pray. God, I pray for each individual that's hearing this right now. God, even if, they're, if in the story there was those three categories and they don't feel like they connected with any of them, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would just meet them where they're at. Lord God, more than anything that they would know and start the journey of accepting the fact that you deeply and desperately love them. And that when they pursue that, that lifelong journey, when they start moving in that direction, that, that they will also be empowered to know that they're playing a part in your mission on this world that they don't have to have a theology doctrine. They don't have to have religion all figured out. They don't have to have perfect discipline set up in their life, but all they have to bring is themselves. And that's more than enough. That's immensely valuable. And I pray that the shackles that certain people are experiencing, maybe it's because they've put on a facade for so long, they don't know how to take it off. Maybe it's because they feel so much like they don't belong in the church setting. Lord, that you remove those shackles from them, that you allow them to experience the freedom of being your children and the joy that we take, not only in pursuing you, but being a part of your mission to this world. So all we can do is trust these things, give these things to you, and believe that you are working in and through our lives. In your name, amen.